Winston Churchill is considered one of the most influential men of all time. Paul Johnson, in his autobiography on Churchill, said, Of all the towering figures of the 20th century, both good and evil, Winston Churchill was the most valuable to humanity and the most likable. He's admired by many, studied by millions, and known by name to billions of us around the world. But there was something I didn't know. A question I wanted to answer. The question I have is how did Winston Churchill become so influential? What propelled him into the limelight? What encouraged people to vote for him? And what made people idolise him? After reading about Churchill's life, it turns out that there is one answer that's surprisingly simple, a tactic that Churchill repeatedly used across the span of his career that bolstered his popularity and increased his influence. And here's the thing, this tactic is more likely to be taught in your psychology class than your politics class. In today's episode of Nudge, I share what that tactic is. Success Story, hosted by Scott D. Clary, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Success Story features Q&A sessions with successful business leaders, keynote presentations, and conversations on sales, marketing, business, startups, and entrepreneurship. Back in December last year, Scott did an episode with marketing legend Seth Godin on how to hire well, which I think is well worth tuning into. So listen to Success Story wherever you get your podcasts. Churchill is easily one of the most influential men in history. Few did more to preserve freedom and democracy. Few had more ups and downs in their career. Few politicians have written as much as him and very few have held such a prominent place on the global political stage for as long as him. It's said that more has been written about Churchill than any other 20th century man. There are over 100 biographies on Churchill, which speaks to his great influence, but also to the sheer amount of things he did in his life. In preparation for this podcast, I read just two biographies on Churchill, one by Paul Johnson and another by Andrew Roberts, and I've linked to both of them in the show notes. There is a huge amount written about Churchill's life, and I'd have to record for hours to begin to cover it all, so if you're looking for a full account of his life, then check out those books. Today, however, I want to highlight one tactic that Churchill used to rise to power and build his popularity. It's something he did repeatedly throughout his career. This tactic is steeped in psychological studies and behavioural science biases, all of which showcase its effectiveness. And it's something I think most modern day politicians, business leaders and marketers should continue to follow. Churchill had skin in the game. Skin in the game. It's it's a term that is popularised by the author Nassim Nicholas Taleb. It involves having, well, skin in the game. If you have skin in the game, it means you're choosing to incur risk to attempt to achieve a goal. It's most commonly used in business and finance. There, it is typical to see a positive correlation between skin in the game and positive returns. In other words, the more an entrepreneur has to risk in their endeavour, the more likely they are to succeed. However, few modern-day business leaders and politicians truly have skin in the game. They don't really have a whole lot to lose from the actions they take. Sure, there are some that do, but most aren't risking much. Churchill was different. He was an all-or-nothing type of individual who consistently put himself at risk to achieve his goals. 
I'll share some examples in a bit, but first, let's get into the psychological effect skin in the game has on us. To start with, skin in the game makes the individuals with skin in the game more committed to the endeavour that they're going after. So, if you endure risk to achieve your goal, you will naturally have more desire to achieve that goal. This is heavily linked in psychology with the endowment effect. There's a famous study by Kahneman and Thaler that highlights the impact the endowment effect has on individuals. In their 1990 study, participants were given a mug, a coffee mug, basically. They were then offered the chance to sell or trade that mug for equally valued alternatives. Rationally, people should be very willing to trade. They'd just been given this coffee mug. It's unlikely that they need a mug. Most people have a mug. But when offered to switch for an equally valued item, even for equally looking mugs, they found that participants were far less willing to give up the mug. Once they had ownership of it, they didn't want to give it away. In fact, their willingness to accept an offer for the mug was twice as high as the amount that they were initially willing to pay to acquire the mug. So, for example, I could sell you the mug before you had ownership of it and you'd agree to pay $5, but if I gave you the same mug and then I asked to buy that mug off you, you would demand $10. Feeling a sense of ownership makes us more invested. It gives us skin in the game, changing our perception and making us more committed. With ownership, suddenly we are at risk of losing something. In this study, it was just a mug, but as the risk and gains scale, so does the effect. One brilliant study from Stuart Sutherland's book Irrationality highlights the endowment effect wonderfully. In this study, lottery tickets costing just $1 each were sold to employees of two different companies. Now, some employees were allowed to choose the number on their tickets, but other employees had no choice and were merely handed a ticket with a number already plugged in. Just before the lottery numbers were drawn, the experimenter approached each subject offering to buy the ticket back. See, here's what's interesting. The participants who had no choice on which ticket they chose were prepared to sell it back for $1.96 on average. But those who had selected their own lottery numbers held out for much, much more. They held out for $8.67. There can be no better demonstration of how we overvalue items when we have skin in the game. Skin in the game changes our perception, triggering the endowment effect, making us more committed to the things we're endowed to. And Churchill's rise to power is largely linked by his desire to get skin in the game and his commitment to becoming a political leader. For example, in 1910, he was promoted to Home Secretary. Now, most Home Secretaries of the time were very happy sitting behind the desk and giving orders to others. But Churchill was different. Paul Johnson writes that, all his life, he refused to be bound by a desk. He insisted on seeing things for himself. His imprisonment by the Boroughs in a previous war that Churchill took part on, which I'll cover later. Well, this war had given him a horror of confinement. So as Home Secretary, he visited prisons. He conferred with wardens. He talked to prisoners alone, probably the first Home Secretary to do so. And he introduced administrative changes such as regular supplies of books and entertainment that dramatically improved the conditions of British prisons. In other words... He had skin in the game. He became more committed to the cause by getting directly involved, which ultimately helped him make progressive, impactful decisions. In January of 1911, Churchill got more involved. A group of international terrorists known as the Anarchists were cornered in a building in London's East End. 
Churchill was excited to participate. Still, as the Home Secretary at the time, he personally joined in the scene with his assistant, Eddie Marsh, who, unlike Churchill, was apparently terrified. Photos of Churchill overseeing the police and soldiers in his elegant attire circulated widely. When a fire erupted, he told the fire brigade to let it burn. Two charred bodies were later discovered. Now, many criticised Churchill's presence, but Paul Johnson argues that a minister with first-hand experience in handling violent crime is more valuable than one who only reads reports. After all, those with skin in the game become more committed. A year later, and there's another example. During a heated debate in the Commons in 1912, Churchill experienced a rare physical attack when an Ulster MP threw a book at him, striking him on the head. Unfazed, Churchill quoted Hazlitt, saying, Hostile ideas hurt him more than physical blows. Now this attack wasn't such a surprise. He was despised by many in Ireland, with dozens threatening to do far worse than simply throw a book at him. But despite all of his peers encouraging him not to, Churchill continued with a speaking engagement in Belfast, even though dozens of threats to his life had been made. It's another clear example of putting skin in the game, putting his life literally at risk to achieve his goals. In fact, this is something Churchill repeatedly did. He repeatedly put himself in the path of physical danger. Now, although reports vary, it is estimated that he was shot at in 50 different occasions during his life. He joined the British Army in 1895 and saw action in British India, the Anglo-Sudan War and the Second Boer War. And he gained fame as a war correspondent and writing books about his campaigns. Churchill returned to battle many years later in Flanders from November 1915 to May 1916, eventually commanding the 6th Royal Scots Fusiliers. Now this was a surprising decision during the First World War. To visit troops in the trenches was not something many home secretaries did. It was in stark contrast to the army's leader, the field marshal Sir Douglas Haig, who apparently avoided the trenches to preserve his decision-making abilities. However, Churchill's time in the trenches provided him with valuable insight into the perspectives of ordinary soldiers and officers which ultimately better prepared him for leadership in the Second World War. This skin in the game gave Churchill a unique perspective. According to Paul Johnson's biography, he forged a close link with the front to ensure that the troops got the exact right weapons and ammunition that they wanted in the exact right quantities. He visited the front line constantly, and Sir Douglas Haig was so impressed by the improvement in the supplies for his soldiers that he completely reversed his original dire opinion of Churchill. Within a year of Churchill's visits, the British army was better supplied with weapons of their choice than both the French or the German armies. The vast quantities of heavy artillery, mobile cannon and machine guns that Churchill sent to the front line played a notable part in the defeat inflicted on Germany towards the end of the First World War in 1918. All of this skin in the game eventually got Churchill a cabinet role, making him one of the key political decision makers in Britain. After winning a general election with a huge majority, Lloyd George appointed Churchill to his cabinet, placing him in charge of both the army and the air force, mainly due to his role in establishing a unified command with France in 1918. Skin in the game has an interesting effect on people. It not only made Churchill more committed to his role, but it also made others around him value his work more. This I think is a really important point today. His decisions to visit the trenches multiple times as Home Secretary when the head of the army chose not to vastly improved the opinions that others had of Churchill. 
This is loosely linked to a cognitive bias known as the labour illusion. Now, the labour illusion means we value something more when we see the labour that's gone into the thing. We value food more when we see it being cooked. We value wine more when we visit the vineyards. And we value decisions more when we see the effort someone's gone to make that decision. There's a wonderful study on this bias, and I've shared it before on the show, but it's relevant here, so I'll share it again. In 2005, Andrea Morellas, an assistant professor in marketing at the University of Southern California, set up a study to see if individuals changed their perception once they knew the effort that others had incurred. In the first study, 46 participants read that they had hired an estate agent and that based on their preferences, the estate agent had created a list of 10 apartments that they might wish to live in. Different groups of participants were told that the lists had been created in different ways. For the labour illusion version, the group read that the list was painstakingly created by hand, with the estate agent taking nine hours a full working day to diligently create this list. However, in the control group, they read that the agent had used a computer to assist with the task, and it took just one hour to prepare the list of houses. After hearing this, the participants then rated the houses they were shown by the agent from 1 to 100, 1 being completely unsuitable to 100 being perfect. The results indicated that the additional effort, the labour illusion variant, increased the ratings of the houses by 36%. That is despite the houses being identical in both scenarios. The only difference was the effort or the supposed effort that the real estate agent had put in. Putting more effort into your work makes other people value your work more, even if the output of the work is identical. Churchill benefits from this bias in a very similar way. Voters saw the effort he put in and the risks he took and valued him more as a political candidate. Michael Norton and Ryan Burrell, two Harvard School researchers, developed our understanding of the labour illusion in their 2011 study. They found that holidaygoers valued the results of a flight search engine 8% more when they saw the search engine meticulously searching through every different flight operator. So when users loaded up their flight search engine on their computer and they saw all of the names of popular airlines pop up, Qantas, Delta, BA, and the search engine checking each and every flight, they valued the results they saw far more than when other participants simply saw a familiar loading bar on a white screen. In other words, the results were considered 8% better when the consumers saw the labour behind the work. Ryan Burrell didn't stop there with the labour illusion studies, however. In one final experiment, one that I've never shared on Nudge before, Burrell created a fake online dating site that matched potential partners. For the study, he varied what the participants saw when they used the dating site. One set of participants saw the site transparently showing how they were being matched up with their partner. So they were saying how we were matching you on variables such as your age, your height, your location, your preferences. So they saw all the work that was going into the match. However, the other set of participants saw just a simple loading bar on a white screen. And it turns out that the labour illusion works just as well for people as it does with airlines. When the participants were shown the effort being made to match with their partner, so for example, when they could see they were matched with their partner because of their location, their preferences, their type, they were far happier with the date that they were matched with. And that's compared to those matched with similar partners who simply saw a plain loading bar. You'll value your real estate agent more if you see the effort they put into their search. You'll value your matchmaker more if you're told how they found you a partner. And you'll value your politician more if you can see the risk they take to do their job. 
But skin in the game didn't just help Churchill succeed in politics. It actually helped him get into politics in the first place. More on that after this quick break. As many of you know, I have just quit my job to go full-time on Nudge. But prior to that, I spent my career working in startups. And startups aren't easy. It's long hours, small teams, tiny budgets. It makes marketing hard work. But it doesn't have to be. HubSpot for startups can help grow your business without growing your stress. Their all-in-one platform connects your sales, marketing and support all together. So you can increase your leads, you can fast-track your deals, smooth out support and join a platform that more than 190,000 top brands trust. HubSpot also offer discounts for startups on their top-rated customer platform and not the type of discounts that barely make a dent. So if you're ready to boost your marketing without breaking the bank, look no further than HubSpot for startups. To see how much you can save, visit hubspot.com startups. Okay, welcome back. So far, I've shared how Churchill used skin in the game as an established politician. But this same tactic was also how he gained his initial popularity. See, Churchill was born into a wealthy, aristocratic family, but he wasn't seen as someone likely to enter politics and definitely not someone who was likely to ever lead the UK. His father famously thought he was pretty useless and didn't expect much from him. After Winston Churchill got into the Sandhurst Military College, he wrote to his father to celebrate the news. His father responded to this message saying, You should be ashamed of your slovenly, happy-go-lucky, harem-scarum style of work. Never have I received a really good report of your conduct from any headmaster or tutor. Winston Churchill was hardly destined for greatness. Instead, he seeked greatness out. He joined the British Army in 1895, and during his service, he actively seeked action, nominating himself to fight in British India, the Anglo-Sudan War, and the Second Boer War. But he wasn't just content with taking part. He wanted to be the voice of the war. He wanted to be the narrator through which others would hear about the war. He wanted to be directly connected with the war and needed to make sure people knew the risks he took. So he became a war correspondent, writing articles from the field for several newspapers. He also wrote books about all the campaigns he took part in, something he would continue to do throughout his career. Now I should say that this was no cushy job. He was regularly in genuine danger and often came very close to death. No more so than when, as a young war correspondent, Churchill was captured and held as a prisoner of war by the Boers in the Boer War. During his captivity, he made a risky, a daring, but ultimately successful escape. This brought him significant attention. It boosted his public profile, not least because he wrote so many articles about the ordeal. By not only taking part in these wars and risking his life, but also by personally documenting those wars, he became a major influencer at the time. Before even entering politics, he was extremely well known. According to Paul Johnson, he was photographed in major newspapers over a hundred times, something that was very impressive for newspapers of the time, which rarely contained images. Soon after, he stood for Parliament and was elected MP in the year 1900. It's impossible to imagine him really ever getting the chance to stand for MP if it wasn't for his skin-in-the-game endeavours. In fact, several studies seem to show that veterans perform far better than civilians or normal politicians at the polls. 
Monica McDermott in a 2015 study showed that having military experience still leads to higher support for voters today. Similarly, Jeremy Tagan found that voters overwhelmingly perceive congressional candidates with military experience to be more able to handle national security and defence issues, therefore making them usually a more popular choice than the average candidate. This varies by party, but veterans tend to see this skin-in-the-game boost to their polls. So it seems that having skin in the game will influence how people vote, and it's clear Churchill benefited from this in his rise to power. Yet having skin in the game is fairly rare today. It's hard to find a politician who so clearly puts their livelihood or even their life at risk when running the country. It's clear from the speaker fees that Boris Johnson has got since leaving 10 Downing Street that he's not financially affected by his time in Parliament. And other than his legal difficulties, Donald Trump's stint and power seems to have only bolstered his international influence and his paychecks, despite his reign being, well, pretty disastrous. But today, when we actually see a leader with some skin in the game, it genuinely changes our perception of them. Zelensky was largely seen as a joke of a politician when he became the Ukrainian prime minister. The opposition candidate at the time said he was too inexperienced to stand up to Russia effectively. BBC reporter Joanne Fisher said, The pressure will now be on Mr Zelensky to demonstrate that he knows what he's doing. He went on to write, Throughout the election campaign, he avoided serious interviews and discussions about policy, preferring instead to post light-hearted videos on social media. The time for joking has to stop. Now, in case you didn't know, Zelensky was originally a comedian who famously started a comedy show where he became the Prime Minister by accident. But today, most regard him not as a comedian, but one of the world's most admirable leaders. And it's hard not to see the link between that view and his skin in the game. Suited in his army gear, clearly putting his life at risk, the perception has rightly shifted in direct correlation with Zelensky's skin in the game. Churchill benefited from the same bias, even as Prime Minister in World War II. Towards the end of the war, Churchill insisted on absolute readiness for the D-Day landings, deciding to delay the operation until 1944 to get it right. A masterful deception plan conceived by Churchill ensured the success of the Normandy landings. But Churchill was not happy to simply hear about the success from afar. He wanted skin in the game. He was eager to witness the victory firsthand and declared to all that he was going to join the troops on the front line during D-Day. Now, this obviously alarmed military leaders. It alarmed the cabinet, and it even raised eyebrows in the White House. Everyone unanimously agreed that it was a bad idea. But Churchill wasn't listening. He was going to go. He was going to be part of the D-Day landings. If it wasn't for King George VI pleading with him not to go, Churchill would have joined the soldiers on the beaches in Normandy, something that was unheard of for any other leader during the time, but something that also shows Churchill's obsession with skin in the game. And look, maybe you'll look at this obsession with skin in the game as being perhaps a little egotistical. This desire to be directly involved, to be the face of the wars he covered as a correspondent, to have the limelight in the House of Commons and to join the troops on the front line at their time of victory, well, it probably does show a bit of a grandiose sense of self-worth. But the thing is, it works. There's a great example from Dave Trott's book, Crossover Creativity, that shows just that. It's not from egotistical individuals looking to maximise their influence, but from marginalised people looking to gain just a bit of influence. In the US, there are about 25 million people with physical disabilities. 
By 1990, they realised that inequality made their disability even worse. See, they wanted to go on buses, into shops and restaurants and cinemas and art galleries. They wanted access to the things that others took for granted. The Americans with Disabilities Act had spent years being debated without getting signed. There was delay after delay. Asking and pleading and debating for this act to be signed didn't seem to be working. So the disabled people did what Churchill did. Instead of simply talking about it, they put skin in the game. 60 disabled people on crutches and in wheelchairs went to the Capitol building in Washington. That is the seat of the US government. The famous building with its five flights of marble steps leading up to the entrance. And these 60 disabled people came to the bottom of the steps and then threw away their crutches and fell out of their wheelchairs and they each began to crawl up the Capitol building steps. Why? Because that was the only way they could access the building at the time. There are 79 hard, wide marble steps and the sight of 60 disabled people dragging themselves up those steps was unforgettable. And what made it even more impactful was that amongst the 60, there was a 10-year-old girl. Jennifer Keelan Chaffins, just 10 years old with cerebral palsy, dropped from her wheelchair and began dragging herself up the stairs alongside the adults. Famously, Jennifer was recorded saying this as she struggled up the stairs. The protests demonstrated what disabled Americans have had to do to get access to the same privilege as ordinary citizens. Rather than debate the topic, they visually showed the effort and risk they had to incur in their everyday lives. Shortly after they had dragged their bodies up those steps, the Americans with Disabilities Act was signed into law. And now, every bus, train, plane, restaurant and shop has to offer disabled access. Churchill never feared skin in the game, and unlike his colleagues, he embraced it. He was always keen to personally experience, visit, or read to understand the situation better. One example shows this more clearly than most. In 1933, Adolf Hitler rose to power in Germany, intending to dismantle the Treaty of Versailles and establish Germany as the world's most dominant power. Unlike most of Churchill's peers in Westminster, Churchill read Mein Kampf, Hitler's book, and believed it represented Hitler's plain intentions. And so, of course, did Hitler. He was later quoted saying, My program was first to abolish the Treaty of Versailles. I have written about it a thousand times. No human being has ever declared or recorded what he wanted more often than me. He was very honest about what he wanted to do, and it was all plainly laid out in his book Mein Kampf. And yet, there was no British response to Hitler's arrival in power. Despite Hitler clearly declaring his views in his book, published seven years before he was even elected, most politicians in Westminster chose to ignore the book and didn't bother reading it. Churchill, however, he had read it. Paul Johnson writes that in government-read circles, Hitler was seen as a deluded adventurer. He would soon be discarded. The mood of the country was highlighted in a provocative debate at the Oxford Union, in which undergraduates voted 275 to 153 for the motion that this House refuses in any circumstances to fight for king and country in a war against Hitler. Churchill called this unwillingness to consider Hitler a threat abject, squalid and shameless. Unlike his peers, Churchill didn't rely on the prevailing views to mould his opinion, he opted for first-hand experience. Whether that's heading to Ireland to deliver a speech despite threats to his life, or reading Mein Kampf whilst others chose to ignore it. 
This urge, by the way, to ignore potential bad news, well, it has a name in psychology. It is often known as the ostrich effect. Ayelet Fishback writes about it in her book, Get It Done. To help us visualise the effect, she shares this great study. She says, consider learning the answer to a trivial question. Yard means either hand or foot in Hebrew. Which do you think it means? Now, if you were to guess the answer and I told you your guess was wrong, you would still be able to learn the correct answer. In the case of these binary questions, learning that your guess was wrong is just as informative as learning it was right. If yard is not a foot, which it's not, it has to be a hand, which it is. It doesn't matter what you guess, you still learn the answer. And yet, the answer people gave considerably changed how likely they were to remember the correct answer. When Ayelet Fishback ran experiments in which people learned by guessing the answers to these binary questions, she discovered that people were far less likely to remember the answer if they had made an incorrect guess. So what was happening here is that fewer people learned from negative feedback. Fewer people recalled the correct answer when they were told their guess was wrong. In comparison, when they were told their guess was right, they were far more likely to remember. So why is this? Both sets of people are learning the same amount of information. Well, it partially happens because negative news undermines our motivation to learn. In the wake of negative feedback, you feel bad, you give up, you stop paying attention, so you don't learn valuable information. In the face of potential bad news, it's a natural tendency to avoid the news and stick your head in the sand like an ostrich. Skin in the game is an antidote to avoid this bias. By having skin in the game, by being personally indebted, you're less likely to avoid bad news and you're more likely to face it head on. Simply by reading Mein Kampf, Churchill showed his unwillingness to ignore bad news, but instead his desire to face up to it, even when others chose to disregard it. I'll leave you with one final example that showcases this point brilliantly. It's an example of a job like Churchill's where you can't simply ignore potential negative news, where you have to face negatives head on. It's another Dave Trott example, but this one is from his book Predatory Thinking. He writes about one of his friends called Max, who flew from Israel to Cairo on El Al Israel Airlines. So Max went to the airport to check in and a young woman checked his luggage. She was very thorough, but Max expected that. Israel knows it's surrounded by hostile states. Being wary of terrorist bombs is almost second nature for the airline. And so she was perfectly pleasant, friendly and chatty as she went through his luggage. And when she'd finished, Max said goodbye. But the young woman said, oh, I'll see you on board. Max said, are you flying to Cairo? She said, I have to. It's El Al policy. Max said, oh, why? Do you live in Cairo? She said, no, I live here in Israel. And Max said, how come you're flying to Cairo then? She said, standard El Al procedure. If you check the passenger's luggage, you have to fly on the plane. Now that is skin in the game. The person who inspects the passenger's luggage for bombs has to bet their life on how well they did their job. With skin in the game, you can't ignore bad news. Let's face it, skin in the game is hardly the only psychological tactic Churchill used to propel himself to power. In fact, I've done a separate bonus episode covering loads of other psychological tactics he used. But in researching Churchill's life, skin in the game seems to be like the bias that he used which had a direct impact on his rise to power. It was only through his vivid descriptions of the wars in Boas, his famous captivity and escape, that led to his initial popularity. 
His willingness to get personally involved in topics he cared about as an MP grew his popularity, like heading to East London to personally witness a terrorist group's arrest or heading to the front line during the First World War to personally see the army's condition, something even the head of the army was adverse to doing at the time. By putting skin in the game, he benefited from a bias that many studies have since uncovered and proved the value of. We, as humans, we value things more when we feel ownership over them, and others value our work more if they see the effort and risk we incur. I reckon most of us could learn from Churchill. Most politicians and business leaders would be better off if they had more skin in the game. Would the country be a better place if politicians couldn't take second jobs, if their pensions were linked partially to valuable metrics like GDP and national happiness? Would businesses perform better if middle managers were directly accountable for specific company goals rather than vague KPIs that are impossible to measure? I reckon skin in the game would improve business and politics, maybe not exactly in the way my examples suggest, but in general, I think they would help. Skin in the game isn't everything, but it's certainly powerful. And if you're looking to bolster your influence as a politician, a business leader or a parent, putting a bit of skin in the game is sure to improve your odds. That's all for today, folks. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. To leverage a bit of skin in the game and labour illusion, I thought I'd let you know that I spent over a dozen hours preparing for this episode, so I hope you value it slightly more than a typical podcast episode. As I mentioned, there was loads I couldn't include today, many more behavioural biases that Churchill lent on to build his influence, and I couldn't fit them into today's show, so I've made a short, separate bonus episode that you can listen to. It contains a few more of Churchill's tactics that he used, and the science behind how they work as well. As I mentioned, these tactics aren't as crucial to his success as skin in the game, but they're still worth learning. So if you enjoyed today's episode, I strongly suggest listening to that bonus episode. To get access to the bonus episode, all you have to do is subscribe to my newsletter. Use the link in the show notes to subscribe. And this is important, you must use that link. So just click on that link in the show notes, hit subscribe to the newsletter, and you'll unlock access to the bonus episode. Don't worry, you can unsubscribe anytime. You can unsubscribe from the newsletter immediately. If you like, you'll still get access to the bonus episode. And if you're an existing subscriber, thank you, but you will need to do the same thing. Add your email via the link in the description and you'll get the episode. You won't be subscribed twice. It'll just check you're already subscribed and send over that bonus episode. So please do go and listen to that. I really think it's worth listening to, especially if you enjoyed today's show. All right, that is all for me today. If you like the show, please do subscribe, please do drop me a review, and please do share the pod with your friends and colleagues. If you'd like to get in touch with me and let me know what you think about today's show, you can. I'm on Twitter at P underscore Agnew, that's P underscore A-G-N-E-W, or reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm Phil Agnew on there. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you next time for another episode of Nudge.